everyone. Welcome back to What's a Story with Jillian and Shauna. Today we're going to talk about episode number 33, Muttkatir, which has an exclamation point at the end of it. So I did have to say it with that level of excitement. <laughs> <laughs> the adaptation we're going to talk about is The Three Musketeers by Alexander Dumas. And Jillian, what's your relationship with this book? Tell me more. Yeah. Um, well, like most households that I knew growing up, we loved the Three Musketeers in my house. Um, I have a younger brother, as we've talked about ad nauseum on this podcast, and he loves all things swords and pirates and all of that. And um, so he loved the 90s movie with Charlie Sheen and Kiefer Sutherland and Oliver Platt playing the Three Musketeers. Yeah, so that was like a highly quoted, watched to the nth degree, like one of our favorite family films. And um, I knew a lot of people who had brothers my brother's age or like boys my age who loved that movie. Um, My parents and I loved it too. It's really funny. It's really silly. And there's like a lot of really quotable lines. So that was like my main connection to the book I've never read the book um and my brother like my brother was a musketeer for Halloween one year and he has like a replica sword he collects swords and he has like a replica musketeer sword um and he bought it like Universal Studios or something I don't know but he yeah the the three musketeers are like very important in my world I love hearing that because I have a younger sister and I'd say like the young men in my life were, you know, our peers, like our friends at school, because my cousins that I grew up with were much older than us, like almost 10 years older. So their like phase through this would have occurred when I was not born. Um, My relationship really with the Three Musketeers is of it as an expression that people use to describe three people who are very close like soulmates essentially and it's usually like around kids or teens I feel and yeah it's really just my understanding of all these adaptations like cartoons and animes and this movie that Jillian specifically mentioned came out in 1993 so this episode is like hot on the heels of that like a year maybe a year and a half later um which back then, like, movies would be in the theater for, like, a year if they were really, really popular. And then they would be on VHS and, like, really popular. So I'm sure it was just, you know, that whole er- era of our lives had so much swordplay in pop culture. Yeah, I mean, I truly, like, I don't know. I just assumed that everybody watched this movie growing up. That was maybe an assumption I made because we, like, wore out the VHS in my house. And it was one of the movies that, like, when I went to college, I made sure to have a DVD of it to take with me because it was, like, such a nostalgia movie that, like, I knew that if I got homesick, I would want to be able to watch it. And it was just, I don't know. Like, I, my dad quotes this movie probably once a week, like, at least. He's just, like, we talk about this movie all the time. So This is amazing because yeah. I didn't know this movie existed until today. <laughs> I believe it with that cast like I was really shocked that Oliver Platt was one of the musketeers because in my head he's like just in a totally different demographic from Kiefer and Charlie who like are coming off you know their 
them being like super hot in the 80s and um, not hot in terms of attractiveness, but in terms of like Hollywood stars. Um, yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> Oliver Platt is actually my favorite character in the movie. He's so funny. And then he's in like two episodes of the Western maybe, and he like plays a very serious role, but I can't see him as anything but Porthos the pirate, which is who he plays in the three I only see Porthos. him as a lawyer. I think he was a lawyer yeah. on like Ally McBeal or The Practice or something like that. He, he plays a lawyer on The West Wing too. And um, he's just like so funny. So real quick um, about the author, about the books, uh, like I mentioned, it's written by Alexander Dumas, who also wrote The Count of Monte Cristo, which we talked about on the show. It was serialized in 1844 in a newspaper. And it's set about 200 years earlier in the early 1600s. And what I didn't realize was that uh, Dumas actually wrote with a writing partner, um, Auguste Maquet. And he actually helped him write The Count of Monte Cristo and The Three Musketeers. Like they talk, I don't know if it was like as much the writing as the story, but they're known as like primary collaborators for these pieces. And I was stunned that I didn't know about this. Yeah, I feel like that didn't come up when we read The Count of Monte Cristo, which I don't remember which one of us did the research on it, but it very well could have been me. And I did not find that information. So that's really interesting. Well, there was another piece of information we discovered after that episode, and it's that uh, Alexander Dumas was Black. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, so his father was born in Haiti and was actually born a slave because um, his father's mother was a slave, and his grandfather, his father's father, took this child to France and because slavery was illegal in France, he was de facto freed. Um, And especially with the Count of Monte Cristo, I think if you look at it through the lens of someone who has likely experienced not only classism, commentary around finances and elitism and the aristocracy, but is also black, who is also experiencing racism and seeing what it means to be a quote member of the aristocracy and also black and present as black from all the like pictures that we've seen in photographs. Um, that was, that is just an interesting piece. Um, but as far as the Three Musketeers, it really is what it sounds like. <laughs> it's an adventure story about Three Musketeers and the story of D'Artagnan, who we'll talk about, uh, is continued in a couple other uh, pieces as well. Um, there's like a 20 years after and a 10 years after story. So the, all these together um, make up the stories about D'Artagnan that tomorrow. And I'm going to make a note about translations at the end of this episode after we talk about the recap. Um, but as we mentioned, Dumas is French. So it originally was in French. And there's a couple of really popular English translations that we'll talk about later on. So, Jillian, are you ready to get into the episode? So ready. All right. Well, we open up in Oakdale, where Wishbone is waiting for the kids outside the school, as usual. And the kids see him, and they get excited until one of them remembers that a teacher is going to show them a new CD-ROM. So they promptly this forget was about the Wishbone. best part of the episode, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Oh my gosh. It was perfect. I I loved it. That they were going to get a 
a private CD-ROM like demo and that they completely forgot Wishbone and just went back into the school and didn't think about the fact that he, as mayor of the town, is just wandering around <laughs> as usual. <laughs> Well, like, did you ever call it a CD-ROM when you were a kid? Wouldn't you have been like, oh, he wants to show us a new game or a new CD even? I never called them CD-ROMs. I wonder if, because this would have been the 90s. I actually might have, because we were still playing, like, floppy disk games at this point. Like, this was the early 90s. Like, we were playing number bunches yeah. and stuff on five-inch floppies for years after this, really. So it would have been really cool to see a CD-ROM and how it works. <laughs> if someone said, I want to show yeah. you a modem, I probably would have gone too, but a modem is just a box. So, like... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I just don't think I ever called them CD-ROMs. Like, I, mean, I might have said, like, a disc or, like, he has a new game. I don't know. I just, I feel like CD-ROM just feels so formal. Like, they might as well have said, like, a compact disc. <laughs> like, it just felt very, I don't know. No, so I get that. Was this episode, and, like, 94? Yeah, 94, 95. Yeah. We got our computer. We didn't get our family computer until, like, 98. So that's way ahead of when I had a family computer. My computer, my family, our family, first family computer did have, like, a three and a half inch, um, like, a hard disk. And But then it also had a CD-ROM. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. I'm thinking also, like, not only did we both just talk about CD-ROM as a thing, but with DVDs, like, if if you knew someone who had a DVD-ROM on their computer, I probably would have said, like, oh, like, Jillian has a DVD-ROM. Or, like, I, because writing to DVDs and reading DVDs from your computer was, like, pretty novel. <laughs> so I'm yeah. kind of used thinking about that in the mid-90s with CD. I think that you just knew more technical terms than I did, because I would have just been like, oh, Shauna can watch DVDs on her computer. Yeah, interesting. I just really liked how excited they were about the CD. It was pretty great. Me too. So they go back into the school to look at the DVD and the janitor spots Wishbone and tells him he's got to go. He's got to scram. And Wishbone feels <laughs> extremely excluded. Like he is really sad. He's scratching at the door. He's trying to get into school. I'm like, bro, you are used to too much freedom. <laughs> this is true he was like I, I just want to get inside I want to get an education and I was like Wishbone you're smarter than all these kids put together you don't need a formal education sir he's read all the books he's, he's so smart he's so smart so they go into school and we see Mr. Delgado their computer teacher I think and yeah. his computer is like not working and he, they don't understand and we see like the, the trio's interactions at work. Like Sam's like, I think your computer crashed. And David's like, I think your ports are blocked. And Joe says, well, this wire has been chewed through. <laughs> 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 and it turns out Mort the lab rat has been loose in the school all week, unbeknownst to the students, which is a little bananas. And he's been chewing up wires all over the school. Is this not a major health concern? You can not just have a rat running loose in your school. I thought that was crazy town. <laughs> All right. So Wishbone spots the rat in the window from outside the school. So Wishbone parkours up to that window. <laughs> and hops into very the supply impressive. closet. 
it was and at this point wishbone like sees himself as a spy he keeps talking about himself as stealth dog and he's like trying to you know break into the school and find the rat and later on we see mr delgado and the kids talking to the janitor who i forget his name but he does have a name um and they're like have you found the rat and the janitor promises to find the rat soon and then we see the janitor enter the supply closet and write find more on his to-do list this rat has been missing for a week. Like, why was it not its top priority? <laughs> I, like, do they not have mousetraps? Do they not have cheese? I don't understand. Like, this is a TV show. There should have been, like, those little flappy traps. Like, well, he said, he said he was going to go get some more mousetraps at the hardware store. And Joe said he was going to go get some power cords. And then the, all five of these people separate. And I did not understand that. I wrote that down as a note. The kids go to buy a top power cord. A, do they have like a car? Are they going to Best Buy? Like, why is there a responsibility? Is there a radio supply staff? room? Like, <laughs> where do you go to get a power cord for a computer in 1994? It was so confusing. You would go to Milwaukee PC. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I think we bought our first family computer at Milwaukee PC. Yeah, we did too. It might have been Milwaukee PC. I just remember it was a very long ordeal. Yeah, uh, yeah, because you had to pick and choose all the components. And yeah, I remember that too. (laughs) So yeah, that's where you go. Radio (laughs) Shack or Milwaukee PC. That's where you go. Wishbone, who had been hiding in the supply closet, he escapes and he wanders around the school looking for Mort. And he's decided to hunt down Mort because he's decided he's an expert rat catcher. Wishbone, you know, really putting himself. Well, he is into a terrier. Shoes. He is a terrier, and like, there's such a thing as a rat terrier, and maybe that's why. Oh, you're welcome. It's a good thing I'm on this podcast. I know things. What does a rat, like, is there a rat terrier, like, in a movie or a TV show I would know, like, that I would know what they look like? No. All right. I don't actually know exactly what a rat terrier looks like, if I'm being honest, but I know that it is a type of dog. And terriers were made for, like, hunting, um, and they're, like, vermin. Yeah, they're, like, made for hunting vermin. Oh, I didn't know that. by made, I mean the word is bred in the dog world. So, yeah, (laughs) that is their purpose. So Wishbone starts off in the science lab and he asks the skeleton, have you seen a rat? Which obviously the skeleton did not reply. And Wishbone really like channels the strengths of other animals. He's like, I'm silent as a panther. I'm quick as a fox. I've got nerves of steel. Ah, big, big rat, hairy rat, big rat, hairy rat. It was so funny that he was so scared. I, I initially heard silent as a panda and that made sense to me, but I was like, wow, what an interesting choice of words. So I rewound it and it turned out the answer was panther. <laughs> that's funny. I do think of pandas as silent creatures. So that, that seems fair. I wonder if they make noise. Maybe just the crunching of bamboo. Like what noise would they make? I know, make? that's really all I imagine them doing and rolling around on hills. Yeah, like they did recently in the National Zoo. There's a video, if you look online, listeners, of the pandas enjoying the snow in Washington, D.C. That's what they do in my head. They just roll around. Sounds giant balls. (laughs) Checks out. (laughs) Checks out. They're so cute. 
So wandering around this room, hiding from the rat, Wishbone sees a beaker falling off a counter. And he says, oh, if what I know about gravity is true, and he jumps and runs away because the beaker falls. Because as Jillian mentioned, Wishbone is smarter than all three of the children put together. (laughs) So at that point, Wishbone runs off to seek reinforcements and the janitor spots Wishbone. Wishbone runs away. The wishbone runs past the three kids on a stairwell. The rat runs past the three kids on a stairwell. The janitor runs past the three kids on the stairwell. Eventually, Joe shouts wishbone and runs after all of this. Again, thank God wishbone is on this show because these kids will get nothing accomplished. Truly, truly. Well, we see wishbone and the janitor in a classroom with a rat and it turns out the janitor is afraid of the rat i would be too i'm not like a real animal person as we know and i don't think i would i'm not a rodent person for sure (laughs) i would not go go after a a loose rat uh and wishbone says to himself never send a man to do a dog's job which i enjoyed (laughs) and wishbone uses the same tactic that more had tried to use on wishbone wishbone tips a container over off a counter onto mort and mort gets trapped under the container and joe runs in and apologizes for wishbone being in the school and the janitor is like wishbone can return at any time but then wishbone hops on the janitor and makes the janitor trip and fall on the skeleton nearby so the skeleton causes the janitor to be upset and the janitor says i take that back you're not allowed in this school anymore (laughs) the end (laughs) you know as we were talking about the rat and how the janitor was afraid of him i had a realization that i believe that i'm afraid of like all animals that are smaller than 40 pounds and i don't know what that says about me but it is very true like dogs so like small dogs cats yeah I'm not really into, I'm not like afraid of them. I just am like not that into them. Like small dogs, cats for sure. Rodents, definitely not. Reptiles, no thank you. Like birds I like only to look at. I don't like them near me at all. I feel like that's how I am with all animals really. Like I don't mind looking at most of them, but I definitely don't want to touch them. (laughs) I've been in many situations where an animal was presented to me for tactile purposes and I was not (laughs) in the market for that (laughs) the only little animals that I like are puppies because puppies are so cute and they're so small and they're so portable but I like them when they get big also maybe that's part of it I know when I was at the National Aquarium in Baltimore they let you touch jellyfish and I was 1000% 1000% not in the market for that but my friend was <laughs> like, right before the quarantine I went to the shed aquarium and you could touch I think it was a starfish and we like stood in line to touch the starfish and we both stuck our hands me in front of the podcast Nick we stuck our hands in the aquarium touched it and like looked at each other and we were like that is not anything we ever need to do again I just walked away like it was just like I'm not an experience I ever need to have ever again in my life. It was horrible. I wish we had discussed because I would have told you from my experience <laughs> a mere few years ago that we do not need to touch sea creatures. 
Well, you know, we had missed the beluga show or the dolphin show. I don't know. There was some show that we were going to go to. And so we were trying to like have an experience in the aquarium and, you know, I don't know what happened. We touched some starfish and it was gross. Well, now you never have to do it again. (laughs) And it was cold and it smelled yucky. I'm telling, I'm, again, I'm not in the market for tactile experiences with animals. (laughs) That's true. You know, even petting my dog, I get like a little bit over it. I'm like, ma'am, please go lay down. I don't need to pet you all the time. (laughs) I've been watching this show on PBS called All Creatures Great and Small, which is based on a book series about a vet in the early 1900s. And I love it. It's so entertaining to me because as you all may know, and Jillian knows very well, I like cannot predict stories at all. And it's so low stakes. It's all about a vet helping animals. (laughs) It's like like a British show, isn't it? Yeah, it's all, it's British. It's on PBS. It's all white people, like so low stakes. And I fall for every joke and like every (laughs) hilarious situation that the vet and the animals are placed in. I am I, I never could predict any of them. And in the last episode I watched, Neville Longbottom showed up and I fully screamed. I was what a like, surprise. What a surprise. I was so shocked. And uh, yeah, anyway, all creatures great and small. Speaking of animals, I don't mind looking at, but don't want to touch. Um, they touch a lot of animals in that show and I would not do that. My favorite animal show is Crikey, it's the other ones. And it takes place in Australia, too. It's on Animal Planet. Is it Bindi Irwin <laughs> wearing an Bindi outfit and- that I would imagine that Bindi Irwin would wear on Wishbone episode? Yeah, absolutely. Bindi and her brother Robert and their mom, Terry, taking care of Australia Zoo, which Steve and his family started. And it's delightful. I didn't know they started it. All right, so let's jump into the story of the Three Musketeers because, you know, it's it's going to be an interesting one, we promise you. This episode's <laughs> this episode's full of twists and turns. So, Wishbone as a voiceover introduces us to D'Artagnan. He's the handsome young hero. He's just a puppy from the country who comes to Paris. And that's just the start of a lot of dog-related wordplay in this episode that I fully enjoyed. I wrote wrote like halfway through the episode. There are a lot of good dog puns. There's just like so many. So many. I enjoyed every single one. So D'Artagnan is just come to Paris. He wants to be a musketeer. And the city of Paris is torn in loyalties between the evil Cardinal Richelieu, who's represented with red colors and red outfits, and the good King Louis, who's represented in blue colors and blue outfits, and the musketeers are on Louis' side. And the reality is whether or not Louis was good is debatable, uh, using the eyes of history. (laughs) All right, well Isn't that true about everyone in history? (laughs) Especially white people. (laughs) True. Very true. Very true. So we come across D'Artagnan, which is Wishbone, uh, meeting the musketeers on this first day. He enters the training grounds and he is overwhelmed by how good they are at their job. And the first thing that happens is he trips a musketeer he wants to meet. And that guy is insulted. He's wearing this 
blue velvet tunic and puffy arms like the Seinfeld puffy sleeve shirt we were talked about last week and the facial hair that you imagine a swarmy 1600s Frenchman to be wearing and big curly haired wig like you imagine uh, King Louis wearing a big black curly haired wig and this man is insulted so the obvious answer is that he challenges D'Artagnan to a duel and D'Artagnan is unconcerned (laughs) he's just like all right sir let's go and he's like well who are these other people over here maybe I can make a friend over here and the other, I'm laughing because I wrote Mouseketeer. I wrote Mouseketeer instead of Musketeer. Justin Timberlake was not there, Shauna. You know what? Justin Timberlake messes up a lot of people's careers, so I wouldn't be surprised if he was trying to mess up D'Artagnan's before it even started. That's such a good point. So, so this other musketeer is offended that of D'Artagnan for some reason. He also challenges him to a duel. And there's a little bit of comedy around D'Artagnan having too many duels in too little time. And then D'Artagnan bumbles over to another guy and is like, oh, here's a handkerchief. Is this your handkerchief? This lady's handkerchief? And this guy's like, I'm like studying to be a priest. Like, of course, this isn't a lady's handkerchief. I'm not someone who interacts with ladies. And this man also schedules a duel with D'Artagnan. And D'Artagnan is still unbothered. He thinks all this is just going to get him to become a musketeer. See, okay. I haven't watched the Charlie Sheen version of this situation in a while but this is like I remember this mostly pretty well and I think that in the movie none of like Porthos and the others whose names I can never remember Athos and Aramis or whatever their names are I didn't even Uh, write them down (laughs) yeah Porthos is the only one I remember is that Oliver Platt yeah (laughs) (laughs) and the other ones start with A and I don't remember their names they're not important um I don't think any of them are in their musketeer uniforms when um, D'Artagnan, in the in the American movie, they call him D'Artagnan, <laughs> real American-like, um, when D'Artagnan uh, challenges them to a duel, and then when they show up, they're wearing their blue capes, and he's like, oh, shit, these are the people I was trying to impress. And that makes a lot more sense, because why was Wishbone out there challenging the musketeers to a duel when he's trying to become a musketeer? Well, In this, it felt like the musketeers were all challenging Wishbone to the duel and Wishbone was complying with their request to duel. Right, but why was it, yeah. But he didn't seem to like recognize that he should not be dueling because he was like, well, then they're going to be impressed with me and then I'm going to become a musketeer. And it's like, no, if you're killing people, if you're killing the musketeers, they're not going to like that. Yes. D'Artagnan. <laughs> D'Artagnan, D'Artagnan is really like delusional in a lot of ways. And after all this, we'll talk a little bit about what actually happens in the book. <laughs> Jillian will fill us in on what happens in the movie. And well, what I remember. What she recalls, which is probably pretty accurate considering how many times you've seen it. That's <laughs> probably true. And we'll find out really that this is an odd book. Uh, as we mentioned before, it's really just an adventure story. So, you know, does it have levels? Maybe, yeah. <laughs> but maybe also not. 
my brother was a musketeer for Halloween one year and it was a real struggle for him because red was his favorite color. Well, it still is his favorite color. And the evil guys wore red and he had to wear blue, which was my color growing up. And it was really distressing for him, but he did it. And when I saw the like red, like tunics or capes or whatever, I was like, oh man, Drake was just jonesing for one of those, but he couldn't wear it because it was the bad guys. It's true, it was the bad guys. That's too funny. So it's dual day and at the agreed upon dual location, all three of these musketeers arrive. And the first man says to D'Artagnan, under different circumstances, we might've become friends. And right before the duels start, the Cardinal's cronies show up and they say, no duels allowed here anymore. And everybody just agrees to fight. <laughs> they decide that the next rightful course to, of action is to fight because the musketeers want to duel and Car Cardinal Richelieu's cronies want to fight. And the musketeers remark that they're outnumbered and D'Artagnan's like, well, I have the heart of musketeer and Wishbone pulls out his sword and thus begins some amazing prop work. That little paw, that fake paw was doing some work with that sword. The sound effects of sword play were so perfect. The sound effects of grabbing a sword from its sheath was worked very well. I really believe that Wishbone was grabbing a sword from a sheath. <laughs> it was a really well edited episode. Wishbone's face work in these scenes when he was doing where the dog just looked very straight faced, like just like, why is this happening to me? While a tiny paw is like, waving in front of his face with a sword attached to it. Oh my God, I was laughing so hard. It was so funny. I was too. It was so funny. I was giggling. It was the exact face Feeny gives me when I put her pajamas on her. Like, why? Why are humans? Why? Sounds about right. <laughs> well, D'Artagnan beats this Cardinal's crony who's fighting and he lets him run off. And the musketeers decide to welcome D'Artagnan into their group. And they're like, we'll train you. We're known as the inseparables. And Wishbone suggests, uh, or D'Artagnan suggests that their motto should be all for one and one for all. And that's also another thing that this musketeer story, I think, has kind of permeated culture a little bit. But I never would have, if you had asked me, like, if you grabbed me on the street and asked me things about the musketeers, I would have had nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well first of all no one should be grabbing anyone on the street that's very rude especially during covid <laughs> especially during covid it's not nice to grab people without their consent but um I, if someone ever grabs you on the street and quizzes you on the three musketeers please let me know because that's the story that i need to hear well i'll invite them on the podcast <laughs> I mean, as long as they've got you, they might as well be helpful. Truly, truly. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to that day, should it happen. It shall. So <laughs> the next time we see D'Artagnan, he's wearing a full musketeer's outfit. Wishbone's got a little blue velvet hat, blue velvet robes, little cute little outfit. And on top of it all, he's got a little tiny mustache under his little tiny nose. I am dead. That's what I wrote in my nose. His mustache, I am dead. I wish that I could put a mustache on my dog every day of her life from now on. Well, wait, if you wait until the behind the scenes, you'll learn more about that mustache. 
Yeah, so the Feeny has freckles on her muzzle, so you wouldn't be able to see a mustache. It would have to be like purple or something. That's true. Which could be very fancy. Anything's possible. <laughs> <laughs> so D'Artagnan has snuck into Cardinal Richelieu's office, and the Cardinal offers him a job on his guard. And the Cardinal also seems to know everything about D'Artagnan's life and how he came from the country to be a musketeer and all this stuff. And he knows that D'Artagnan came here to make his fortune, to become wealthy. And when D'Artagnan declines, the Cardinal threatens him. And he's like, you know, if something happens, I'm not going to help you out. If something, you know, something shady goes down, I'm not going to be here helping you out. And D'Artagnan's like, whatever, I'm just going to peace out. And he leaves and he's walking down, <laughs> he walks down the hall and this woman pops out of a niche in the wall and <laughs> starts speaking to him. And he's like, wow, I thought you were a statue. And it's this beautiful woman um, who's known as Milady, And she tries to convince D'Artagnan to come to her side, to the Cardinal's side. And D'Artagnan's like, nope, no thanks, no offense. And she says, I never take offense. I take revenge. You're a dead dog. Oh, she also says he could come live in a lap of luxury. Specifically, her lap of luxury, which is weird and kind of sexual for a PBS show for children. But also, it's just so weird to insist on being called Milady. That's her character's name in the book as well. I understand that, but I don't like it. I don't like it either. I was like Madame or something, or like give her like a fake name, like Madame Blanc or something. Like that's that's better. <laughs> yeah, I don't understand. You know, when I was um, the maid of honor at my cousin's wedding, the best man insisted on calling me Milady all day. I think he couldn't remember my name, but. He called me Milady, and I called him my man. And that was all I could think of when she was like, you can call me Milady. Oh, gosh. So D'Artagnan goes back and tells the other musketeers what happens. And the musketeers say, your enemy is our, many, our enemy. We'll watch out for you. We'll watch your back. So the musketeers go to spy on the cardinal and milady, and they pretend to hide by a shadow, like very comically. It's a very vaudevillian. Like they're not doing it on purpose. They just happen to be by the statue when these two walk into a courtyard and they freeze. <laughs> <laughs> and the cardinal asks milady to assassinate a certain duke, and milady says, "I have a price. I want to kill D'Artagnan." And the Cardinal says, well, you know, he's a courageous young fighter. And Milady says, that's why he's so dangerous. And she offers him a trait, a life for his life. And she wants it in writing. And he gives her a carte blanche, meaning he literally writes on a piece of paper that she can do whatever the F she wants. And she Which, I didn't know that that's really what a carte blanche was. Like, I mean, obviously it's like a, like a phrase that I've heard like, oh, you, she has carte blanche to do whatever she wants. But yeah. Like, I didn't realize that it was, like, literally a white piece of paper. Because it's one of those papers that, like, the Magna Carta, the carte blanche, I used to confuse those two sometimes. And they're two very different things. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Very different. It's true. Okay. <laughs> So I did know it was, I didn't know what a carte blanche was. I mean, I'm Maybe, just saying, as someone who has a history degree with a French minor, that was a big mistake on my part. That was, that was a big hole in my knowledge. 
Well, I do see a lot of like, I watch a lot of spy stuff and action stuff. And like, you sometimes like you want a carte blanche or like, if like someone in an office is like, you know, doing whatever they want or whatever, like acting like they have a carte blanche. I feel like I hear it in pop culture and stuff too. Well, yeah, no, it's like, it's an expression that I knew. I knew what it meant to have carte blanche. Oh, you just didn't know it. it. Like, I didn't know like the, the like, the, the root, the, root, where it came the from, the etymology. The yeah. yeah, the etymology was like okay. an actual like hall pass, basically. Which is exactly how Wishbone in the voiceover explains a carte blanche. It's, he's like, it's the ultimate hall pass. And that's pretty accurate <laughs> for kids, especially. Which, so, you know, in high school, I did have a laminated hall pass that just said Jillian to the theater any day, any time. So I basically had a carte blanche. You saying. You kind of did. In the theater, you did. You could have killed. <laughs> so he gives her a carte blanche, as Jelly had mentioned. It's a, literally a piece of paper with a note on it. And the cardinal says, I'm going to leave this courtyard first so we aren't seen together. And the musketeers very comically hide a sneeze until the cardinal is gone. And then they release the sneeze. And... One of them says, wow, the sculptures are so lifelike these days, which to me was good, clever writing, because that's also how Milady snuck up and eavesdropped on D'Artagnan earlier. And Very the, clever. So clever. And the car, and the musketeers just asked for the carte blanche, and she says, it's my passport to freedom. Like, you can't, you'll have to take it from me. So they just take it from her. They're like, it's ours now. And she's left there wishing she had a carte blanche. <laughs> so a little bit later she really on, dropped the ball there she truly did a little bit later a milady turns d'artagnan into the authorities as a traitor but since d'artagnan has a carte blanche when richel's guards arrive to arrest him the musketeers are like you know what we we back him like you guys gotta leave like you can't you can't do anything to us and the cardinal eventually gets D'Artagnan and he says, you know, you'll probably hang for this. Like I am both judge and jury. And that's when D'Artagnan hands over this carte blanche and Richelieu trades it to him. It's basically like you get your life and now here is a commission to be the Lieutenant of the Musketeers. And I'm gonna leave the name slot blank. So you choose who's gonna go on there. And D'Artagnan, thinks he hasn't earned it and he asked his friends I want to give it to you and his friends all say like you earned it you take it and he signs it with a little paw print and it's adorable <laughs> this is very adorable and the little behind the scenes bit as I mentioned earlier uh Wishbone tells us about how they use special vegetable dye on the dog to give him a little mustache and they said human mistake reacts to it and you never know how it's going to react to animals for animal skin. So don't put makeup on your pets. <laughs> I like that. And real quick, before we kind of talk about it all, I wanted to make a note about the translation. So one of the original translations that became like really widely read in the mid 1800s was written by William Barrow. And to conform to like English standards of the time, all references to sex and sexuality were removed, unlike this episode of Wishbone, which definitely. I was going to say, clearly, <laughs> the lady did not get the note. 
Yes. And as a result, um, English readers of the book had a totally different understanding of the tone and relationship between different characters because D'Artagnan actually um, becomes obsessed with Milady and is infatuated with her. And one of her maids says, hey, Milady is not into you. And D'Artagnan uh, pretends to be someone else and rapes her. And th that is like one of the key things that this story doesn't go into. But other than that, a lot of what happened in the adaptation is what happens in the actual book. The only other real thing that I noticed um, besides like a love triangle and unrequited love storyline with like royals causing drama um, is at the very beginning on his way to Paris, uh, D'Artagnan insults this old man and challenges him to a duel. But his peeps just beat up D'Artagnan. And when D'Artagnan arrives at the musketeer's place to become a musketeer, he's rejected, but he sees that old man out the window. So he runs out after him and he insults the musketeers on his way to run out. And that's how he ends up having those three duels with the musketeers. Mm. Does any of this sound familiar to you as someone who's seen the movie <laughs> many times? Because Hollywood doesn't always, you know, uh -huh. The, um, I don't remember this like running after an old man situation exactly, but there was something like that that like started the chain of events with the musketeers. But the piece about him being in love with Milady, I was kind of confused as to like why he was giving her the cold shoulder in this episode. And so I had a feeling that in the movie, there was like a little bit more of a love interest between D'Artagnan and Milady. And I feel like in the movie, perhaps it was like a mutual like ogling, if I remember correctly. It's easier for like the storyline. Well, right. And like in a Disney movie, they're not going to have the like hero of the story rape someone because that's- They're just Disney. not- <laughs> especially not in the 90s so yeah so that a little bit rings true what I didn't what happened in this movie in this episode that I thought was interesting was that in the movie D'Artagnan is like proving himself the whole time like trying to become a musketeer and it's like in this episode it seemed like he became a musketeer like right away he had that fancy blue tunic and his hat which I really loved his hat um and in the movie he doesn't get that until the end like he's like a musketeer in training basically the whole time and that's like when he gets accepted into the group is when he gets to wear his blue cape thing and then I think he also gets Milady, who I believe has a name in the movie I wouldn't be surprised yeah it's not coming back to me as much as I would like but anyway I think those were the main things that I like kind of stuck out to me that he like got to be a musketeer right away, which doesn't happen in the movie. One thing that I finally understood after watching this Wishbone episode is I thought that these three musketeers were the only three musketeers. Like from the um, way that we use the expression, like that just made sense to me. Like, oh, the three musketeers, like they're the only three, like they're so- Yeah, that cool. makes sense. And I was like, oh no, like, there's a bunch of musketeers <laughs> like it's a whole like yeah. troop of them it's like a whole you know unit of the military that was a surprise to me yeah 
You know what else is worth noting is that Tim Curry plays the Cardinal in the movie. And I feel like Tim Curry was like the ultimate 90s villain in kids' movies. So smarmy. I can see his face right now yeah. with that little, probably that same facial hair. You know, I think that he attempts to rape the... Milady. The, I believe you. Like, I feel like he... I feel like he like assaults her in the movie and it's like kind of like hard to understand when you're a kid exactly what's happening. Yeah. But I feel like there's a scene where like he like she's like in the bath or something like that and he comes up on her when she's like in her bath and she thinks it's like her lady in waiting but it's somebody but it's actually him. People should just watch the movie because I don't remember what happens but I think that that is part of it. It's a Disney movie. It might be on Disney+. Plus. I'm sure it is. Yeah. So overall, my feeling of the story was like, okay, so D'Artagnan's like biggest ambition was to be like, you know, fame and fortune and whatever. And the end of the story, it just kind of feels like, okay, you achieved your ambition, but at what cost? <laughs> like, like what was, what was the point of all this? And does there have to be a point? I don't know. I guess like if it's just an adventure story, it's like, you know, taking us along the journey of how he gets from point A to point B. That's it. (laughs) Yeah, I felt like, I mean, I think this is like a lot of stories that we've read. And I feel like a lot of stories at the time, like adventure stories seem to be pretty popular. It's kind of like Tom Sawyer or Treasure Island. Like, I mean, really, I see a lot of parallel on Treasure Island. It's like kind of what's the point except adventure. And that's really the only point of the story. So if you find that interesting, I guess that's interesting to you. Yeah, I feel like I felt that way with the Count of Monte Cristo too. And then when I learned that Alexander Dumas was black, all of a sudden I interpreted the story like completely differently. Um, And you know, not that that color is everything, but your experiences as a person do tint the way that you write and work, no matter what your work is. Uh, so just an interesting story. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess we're like reading way too much into it on my end, but like Alexandre Dumas was a black man living in France in the whatever time period this was. Mid 1800s. Yeah. And he's writing about a character, D'Artagnan, who's like, who feels left out in some way or is like trying to fit in and then is like seeking fame and fortune. Maybe there's some parallel to his life of feeling like an outcast and feeling like he just wants to fit in and be one of the team. I don't know. Yeah, he really from what I learned on Wikipedia, he really leveraged like his dad's reputation and wealth, like to basically you get his connections and kickstart his career. And his dad became like this hugely lauded, like military hero. Um, So that's where their like kind of level in the aristocracy came from. And that's it. I wish I had more interesting things to say. We aren't even yeah. recording this like late. Like this just, this episode just kind of was, <laughs> it is what it is. Yeah. Well, and I didn't feel like the two, I didn't really feel like the two plots really tied together that well. And the wishbone piece of it actually was just kind of boring. Like he was just chasing a mouse and the kids really didn't do much. Um, and 
yeah, I actually was kind of disappointed because I feel like Three Musketeers is a story that is like so well known. And like, I have such fondness for the Three Musketeers as we've discussed ad nauseum from my love of that movie as a kid. And so I was kind of like, oh, I wish they could have done something more interesting with this story and like come up with a better plot for the Wishbone piece or like made it feel more fun. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It wasn't like a horrible episode. It just wasn't like, there wasn't a ton to write. I didn't take very many notes. I didn't come up with anything really brilliant to say about it. I think what like I usually do. You do. We we usually have really interesting twists and turns in our conversations. And I think that's why this conversation sticks out because we have had those twists and turns, but it's been like trips down memory lane. It hasn't really been about the story. I think you're what the comment that you made that really sticks out to me is that to you, the story is very well known. And I think this goes back to our conversation around Shakespeare last week. Like to you, the story is very well known. I didn't even know there were more than three musketeers. <laughs> like, so now that I like think about it that way, what could they have done in the wishbone episode differently, right? Like we have these three, we have our trio. They couldn't have written an episode about somebody wanting to be part of the trio because then that person would have had to be a part of the trio for the rest of the series. And Wishbone is kind of like D'Artagnan, like always trying to like be part of their adventures and things like that. I think they could have done something where like the, the trio, like Sam's episode with the horseshoe, like the trio's on an adventure and Wishbone has to like help them or protect them or something like that maybe would have been more exciting. Um, but I think you're, you're completely dead on when you say that the Oakdale part was kind of boring. Like it wasn't yeah, very lively. They could have done something where like the three older kids are trying to do something and then like Emily is trying to get in with them like they're trying to go on an adventure and Emily wants to come along and then Emily eventually like earns her way in and then she would have been like a temporary fourth musketeer that could have been interesting yeah I think I think they're I admire these writers so much especially having like read a little bit more about how they made the show that sometimes they you know read the book one night and had to like write the script the next day so I really admire them for coming up with ideas on ways to like kind of connect these stories from the adaptations to some sort of story rooted in reality I wouldn't say this missed the mark it just it the this episode felt like it was more about the adaptation and because so much of the book was in the adaptation I don't really mind that I feel like I learned a lot about the story of the three musketeers yeah well and maybe I just like I thought that there was some good humor in it but the 90s movie is so funny that I was like "Hmm, could have been funnier like it was like I was missing the mark on that I, like I said, it wasn't a bad episode. I thought it moved quickly, but it was it just wasn't like one that I wanted to instantly text you and be like, oh my gosh, what a great episode. I was just kind of like, eh, okay. The dog puns were really, really good though. The dog puns were good. Wishbone's costumes were phenomenal. The sword work with the fake paw, like you said before, amazing. Um, but yeah, so I good. Just kind of wanted a little bit more, but... Yeah, we're 33 episodes in and that's the first time where we've been like kind of disappointed. So I feel like they're doing a good job. Yeah. And it's not even that we're disappointed. Like 
I liked the adaptation. Like I felt like I learned a lot and it was all a new story to me. Right. Like, and I think it's, it isn't necessarily that it feels like we're disappointed. It feels like we have high expectations because of what the show has given us until this point. And like this time they really just gave us a thorough adaptation. Like they yeah. did what the show is supposed to do. They actually met expectations and like that's the goal. Succeed. Yeah. Like that's the thing. Like we, you know, they have been exceeding expectations. So that they met expectations feels like a disappointment and it's just an interesting thing to think when I like reframe it that way. I'm like, yeah, they literally did what I watched the show for. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, did you have any other comments about like the fashion or the costumes? I did have a quick, I wanted to talk about the nineties a little bit because I mentioned earlier that I had accidentally written Mouseketeers in my notes instead of Musketeers and the Mouseketeers, you know, Jillian and I grew up at a time, kind of the tail end of the Mouseketeers on the Disney Channel, um, like Brittany and Ryan Gosling and JC Chazé and JT and uh, a couple. Uh, Aguilera. Yeah, Christina Aguilera. Yeah, there's a handful, like, now that I understand that there are more than three Musketeers, the concept of the Mouseketeers makes so much more sense to me because you can have like a whole little troop of Mouseketeers. Yeah. So other than me learning more about Musketeers and Mouseketeers, which frankly, I don't know if it's a cultural touchstone anymore, besides like the expression three Musketeers, I actually would suspect if we like asked a bunch of our friends do you, what do you know about the Musketeers? They would be more on my side of the spectrum of probably, unless like they, you know, loved the movie or had a family member who loved the nineties movie. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like other than that, I don't really know of many people who know of the adaptations um, like cartoons and other movies and stuff. Yeah. I think that that's probably true. I think, I think the expression of the Three Musketeers is is probably in most people's touchstone with it. I also, yeah, I don't know. Like, and then I was just thinking, like, there's a lot of famous trios, and I wonder if that stems from the concept of the Three Musketeers, or if it just stems from the fact that like having a trio of characters makes for good interaction because there's an opportunity. Yeah, there's an opportunity for one person to feel on the outs all the time, which makes for good stories. Uh, yeah, I think it would be so interesting to read something about trios and storytelling because I feel like I encounter it a lot in like fantasy storytelling and like magic kind of things. Maybe it's just that I don't really read a lot of series <laughs> unless it's like something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and even like the Babysitter's Club was, you know, more than three, <laughs> more than three mm-hmm. little ladies. Uh yeah well that's the episode (laughs) uh interesting one a a real roller coaster a real ramble for our listeners but you know we had to get like I said there had to be one that just met expectations and now we actually know what it feels like to realize (laughs) that we got used to exceeding expectations that's okay it's good do you want to go first with your key takeaway or would you like me to go first? I can share mine. It's not really actually a takeaway, but just more of like a thought question yeah. or um, 
so the motto of the Musketeers is all for one and one for all. And I was just thinking about it, like kind of as I was watching. And I don't really know that I know what it means. Like all, for, like it's like all for one cause or like all for the defense of one. And then one gives it all, gives it for everyone. I don't know, it's just like, it's like a weird it sounds like a good rallying cry, but like when you break it down, it's like kind of weird. Yeah, I'm with you. I feel like you're right. You know, all for one means like we have a central mission that we're aligned around and one for all. My interpretation of that is we all have each other's backs. That's interesting. I mean, I, I agree with the first part of it. Like all for one is like, I agree. It's like, we're all united for this one cause and like, we're all going to give it, we're all going to get, like, if you think about it in terms of like war, it's like, we're all fighting for this one thing. But then if I, then reversing it one for all feels like sacrificing, it's okay to sacrifice the one for the good of the cause or like for all of it, which is, I'm not disagreeing with that, but that's how it reads to me. And it, it may be a misinterpretation. That's so interesting. I just Googled it while we were talking about it. And it comes from a Latin phrase, unus pro omnibus, omnis pro uno, which means one for all and all for one. And it's the unofficial motto of Switzerland. And on pour tous, tous pour un, my great French accent coming out, was made famous by Alexander Dumas and the Three Musketeers. So... If you look at it with the word tous, like the French word for all, I feel like it makes more sense. <laughs> like, like in that sense, and I'm like, uh, like I'm, I'm all for, I'm with everybody else, and everybody else supports each other. Is how I. I think that that's what it's supposed to mean. I just think it doesn't read that way to me, but I don't, I don't, I don't know. That's all I got. I didn't really have a key takeaway from this episode. And that was all I could think of. And I was like, I don't understand what this means. And so that's what I have. Well, like you said, it's just a thought question. It's a thought, something to think about. So the, that is exactly what it means. The, but when you read it, so the diction, dictionary.com <laughs> definition says, all the members of a group support each of the individual members and the individual members pledge support of the group. For some reason, reading it like that makes more sense to me than like all for one, one for all. You never know what's going to click. I mean, the English language is unnecessarily complex. And even just, you know, two minutes ago, I said it made more sense in French than it did in English, like because of the word that they chose for the word, like all of us together. Like that's what that yeah. word means. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. I actually think that I was reading it backwards. Like all the members of the group support each other for the individual members is all for one, right? Like you're saying, like, I understand. It's like that I don't speak English or write for a living, which I do. Honestly, both of those questions. <laughs> weird day, weird episode. It's a global pandemic. Like anything, any of these reasons. I've been, I've been watching Buried at First Sight all day, so I'm pretty sure that I've destroyed all of my working brain cells. Also, the wind chill is negative 25 today where I live, and I had to go outside. So <laughs> I'm, I may be dead inside. 
anything's possible. Like well, you said, it's just a thought pre- experiment. <laughs> that's my key takeaway. Shauna, what do you have to share? <laughs> I wrote down a bunch of different ones because I couldn't really feel like I got a key takeaway or any one particular moment. And some of the ones that I wrote down, I was like, this is a much longer discussion than this episode deserves. So what <laughs> I <laughs> what I landed on was... Just thinking about the trio, like Joe, Sam, and David, like they have so many moments in this episode where they're just simply on the same wavelength and not quite the like finishing each other's sandwiches slash sentences situation, but they're truly aligned with each other's perspectives and priorities. And that's what I kind of landed on. Like them as the three musketeers and what the expression kind of means and to me as someone who has not really been like a member of a three musketeers and that's just not how I socialize and it's never going to be like that I really kind of landed on the idea of like finding your community but like redefining that to be meaningful to you because community is this idea this language that our culture is now like broaching and trying to interpret and talking about what does community mean and what does chosen family mean. And it's so easy to feel like there's a definition, like we were just discussing with the previous thing, that there isn't a definition, there's an interpretation and you get to interpret what that means. And especially when you're talking about finding your community, like you hear every week on this show, Jillian and I have known each other for 20 years now and we have a lot in common and what we have in common is really like how we approach the world and how we interact with other people and we don't have a ton of shared interests <laughs> like that's just who we are we do have a lot of shared interests but we we have a lot of other things we're really passionate about that is not like in the Venn diagram intersection of our lives and I think that's where I'm landing on like it's okay to have different people in your life who represent like different passions and facets of your life like different things you're really intensely excited about sometimes those things will cross over like the to all the boys movies I have a lot of different people that I talk to about those and um, talk to about those books but there are other things that you know I would talk to about would talk with somebody else about that I never would think to talk to Jillian about. And she knows like I have interests that she's not interested in (laughs) and that's okay. Don't offend me if you don't talk to me about those things. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Because like, we also like wanna have like valuable, it's quality time, right? Like that's like a love language. Like how do we make sure we're experiencing quality time? And part of that is like, we're meaningfully engaging each other when we engage each other because that's how we want to interact with each other. So that's where I landed on, not from the episode at all, really just an overarching thought about the relationship between Joe, Sam, and David. That's a really interesting thought. I think about that a lot, actually. Um, Because I think I like to think about like, not like assessing how I rank my friends, but just sometimes like, as a thought exercise, especially during quarantine, when I'm like, wow, I'm very lonely. I think about like the important people in my life and I'm like, oh, but I have this friend and I have this friend and I have this friend. And it's interesting that like, if I were to tomorrow assemble like a bride 
film party or whatever, or like gather a group of my closest friends. Those people all know each other, but like none of them are friends with each other. Like Shauna and our friend Nick, like we like grew, grew up together. We went to high school together. You two don't talk as much as I talk to either of the two of you. And you know, like that that's just one example, but like there are a lot of people in my life who don't fall into the same categories exactly for what you're talking about. Like I've cultivated, maybe we all met in college or maybe we all met in high school or whatever. We've all known each other for a long time, but I've cultivated individual relationships with each of those people that are separate from them. That like they are separate from my relationships with the, the whole collective. And so I think sometimes it, there's this idea of like, a trio or a group of friends who have all been friends for forever together, who grow together, which is interesting, but I think it's equally as valuable to have individual relationships that make up your collective, your own community rather than like having a formed community. Yeah, I think as someone who also is alone during this pandemic and like managing that alone, um, the kind of exercise you just mentioned really reminds me of something I did in therapy a couple of years ago where my therapist didn't tell me to do this, but this is how I interpreted it because that's how my brain works. But I literally like had to draw like concentric circles and like write down like who's in this circle who's in this circle who's in this circle what are like what are the boundaries for each circle like what to me defines the fact that this person is in this circle and it's like what kind of information would I share with them like how quickly would I go to them with good news or bad news or seeking advice I'm someone who like sends all of my problems into my social network and my social network solves them for me. So like, who are those people that I Same. consider like This that? could be where our friendship has developed. <laughs> we approach our other friends the same way. <laughs> yeah, but like I knew that, and especially during quarantine, I went back because, you know, a year ago now I was in a really different world. I saw the same 200 people every single day and interacted with all of them. And then overnight that stopped happening. And I, you know, had to write down like, okay, like these are all the people I want to try to check in with every day. These are the people I like maybe once a week, maybe once a month. And as time has progressed, like those categories have changed, but they are helping me like be like, this is what it means to me to maintain this relationship with this person. And this is what it means to me to maintain this relationship with this person. And like Jillian, someone I talk to multiple times a day, <laughs> like that's just how, how our relationship has always been. And with other people, it's continued that way. And other people have become part of that category <laughs> who I didn't talk to all the time. And other people I did talk to all the time. It's like a couple of times a week. And this is such a weird time, but we all just have to like give each other so much grace about like, what does friendship mean right now? Nobody knows. Right. <laughs> like we're all just trying to survive. <laughs> like don't, you're not being yeah. a bad friend. You're just being a friend and it is what it is. And your friends are in the same situation as you and no one's gonna resent you for, you know, not texting them back right away or, not texting them for a couple of weeks or, or whatever. Yeah, 
Well, and I think like technology really has changed this whole game, right? Like in in quarantine, technology has been such a lifesaver. Obviously that Shauna and I, this isn't obvious except for the two of us, we talk completely electronically most of the time. We're not, we're not the kind of people that like pick up a phone and have an hour long conversation, but we're constantly sending Instagram messages or texting each other back and forth all day, um, every day about whatever <laughs> comes to mind. But then I have other friends who I probably don't exchange as many messages with. Like I'll send them a random thought from time to time, but then I will pick up a phone or like hop on FaceTime with them for two or three hours at a time once a month or something like that. And they're still, I would consider, you know, some of my best friends and that's how we communicate. But I think, I sometimes think about like, if my world were collapsing down around me, who would I call? And like, who are those people that are like in that closest circle, right? As you were describing, like the people who you give the most amount of information to. And what I think is interesting is that because of technology, most of those people in my life don't actually live in the same city as me. And the reason why they can still maintain that like close circle, like, status but it's not really status but like level in my world is because of of technology and like for some people maybe like the person you call when you want to grab a drink and the person you call when like you need to be picked up off the ground are the same person but in my world those are very different because my closest friends for the most part don't live in the same time zone as me so (laughs) I think I think that that's a really interesting way to think about it too and I think for Joe and Sam and David, going back to like this idea of the trio, like their friendship right now is probably based on proximity. The fact that they live in the same cul-de-sac and that their parents were all friends and they all grew up together. And how is that friendship going to evolve and change as they go off to school and Joe goes to like, you know, probably a normal school and David goes to like an Ivy League. <laughs> And Sam goes to like, I don't know. They might all go to UT Austin. UT Austin, the top 10% of every school gets accepted. I don't know that David would like, I don't know that David and Joe have the same caliber of grades is all I'm saying. I think Joe could get a basketball scholarship. That's a possibility. You're right. I'm really underselling Joe Talbot. But I mean, their lives will change and their lives will evolve. And that happens on the show. I remember yeah. the last episode. Oh. I remember a conversation they have. <laughs> yeah. Well, their lives will change. That's how the world works. And what will it look like in 20 years when they're podcasting? Well, I'm saying they'll also have the internet, though, so they'll be able to stay friends. Yeah. And I think that, like, having your friends in your pocket concept, like, is generational in some ways. And also, as someone who, like, Jillian and I had different adult experiences because I moved and traveled a lot for work, and Jillian didn't as much. You did a few times, but not as much as I did. Yeah, not nearly as much. Yeah, so, like, my, the only way I could maintain relationships was online, truly over the last 20 years. Like, I have so many close friends who I moved away from or people I met online first, like, through like Instagram or through like different like live journal or stuff like that who I'm like very close with and we like travel together and we see each other in the real world a lot like that is just how I built and maintained friendships over the last 20 years so for me 
I had those like tools in my toolkit already. And I had a lot of people, including Jillian, who I had had practiced those skills with already. So now that, you know, we're a year in and you're going to start seeing more stuff about like human psychology and like everyone's noticing that the relationships that like they continued are the ones that were strong already. And the relationships that like kind of fizzled are the ones where you still were feeling each other out and you didn't necessarily have your like boundaries in place and you didn't necessarily like, maybe you were really vulnerable with them about certain things, but like that could be proximity or different reasons or whatever. Um, but yeah, the, the ones that a lot of us have leaned on are the ones that like people we might've known the longest, or like, if you're in a relationship, like people, like your partner, or, like really having to make that tough decision about whether you're going to be quarantined together or mm-hmm. making decisions over time. But it is weird. This is a weird time. <laughs> it is a weird time. Yeah. I think that when you're constantly having to make decisions about whether someone is safe to be around, like actually physically safe to be around, even if you're going to be masked, even if you're going to, you know, maintaining distance, like there are still some people whose lives I don't trust enough to be around them. I think that that really alters your perspective on your friendships and your relationships in general. And like having to literally trust your life when someone else's hands just to like socialize with them really like brings things to a level that is alarming, but also like, I don't know, in some ways it makes it easy to weed people out, right? <laughs> like We've definitely talked about this. Like, it's like yeah. this, you know, this country doesn't know how to communicate, our culture doesn't communicate. And this is a situation where if you are not, you know, intimate or vulnerable enough with someone to be very clear about your needs in this time for your own safety, then, you're just not going to continue having a relationship with them. <laughs> that was well, a good key takeaway, Shana. Yeah. Here I am doing a key takeaway that has nothing to do with the episode. <laughs> Fine. It happens. Thanks, Jillian, for a good conversation. Yeah. Well, do you have a recommendation for our listeners this week? Well, actually, I was just looking at my recommendation and thinking this is super funny. And I actually don't know if I've recommended it before. And if I have... I don't care. Um, My recommendation for this week is the podcast Best Friends with Nicole Byer and Sashir Sashir Zameda. Have I recommended this? You haven't. Okay. Yeah. I'm so excited for you to recommend it. Um, So Nicole and Sashir are like the funniest best friend duo of all time. Um, and I love to just have them talking to me while I'm like getting ready in the morning or like making dinner or something. And I just, I find them so charming. Like Nicole Byer is like the wackiest lady and I just love everything about her. She's so funny. She started a roller skating gang during uh, quarantine and she's just funny. Like that's just a funny concept. And the more podcasts I listen to, of like comedians in LA, it seems that more and more people are joining her skating. And I think that is hilarious. Um, And Sashir is like, she's equally as funny. And I think that she is equally as quirky, but like in such an opposite way to Nicole, maybe she's not quirky, she's just funny. But like the way that she deals with Nicole's quirks is just so hilarious to me. And 
yeah honestly I just love listening to them talk and they don't really talk about anything but I love it anyway and it makes me super super happy and they're the kind of friends that like I think that they're they're like true ride or die friends you can tell like they just genuinely love each other no matter what is happening with them and that makes me happy so that's my recommendation I love that recommendation. And we have proof that they're ride or die because of Nicole's ankle. And Sashir was one of the people who basically, you know, carted her around town. That's what I was thinking of, actually. Yeah, Nicole busted her ankle. She, like, fell down the stairs, broke her ankle. Oh, she couldn't drive. And Sashir just drove her around town, took her to all of her doctor's appointments. I... But they also like go on vacation together and they like, they're, they're living like both extremes of like, yes, I'll take you to Walgreens and yes, we can go to Italy. And like, I don't know. I, they're just like a truly delightful partnership and I really love it. I love it. The show is Best Friends and Nicole and Sashir are so good. I recommend it. Thank you, Jillian. I also love Sashir's name. It's so good. <laughs> So my recommendation is on Hulu. So unfortunately, if you don't have access to, I think it's American Hulu, you won't be able to watch this. Uh, it's you can get a free seven-day trial. Oh, there you go. It's in and of itself. It's on Hulu. It is a filmed version of a performance that was happening in New York, um, kind of a one-man show. And it's like a combination between storytelling and sleight of hand and genuine conversations and magic illusion whatever you want to say and it is so so good I encourage you to watch it and not look up anything about it just have what I just told you in the back of your head I loved it. I cried really hard. Um, I cried everything, but like I really cried really hard and I laughed and I was taking notes. Like I take notes during everything, but like I, it gave me so much to think about, um, especially during a time when like I'm alone all the time and like thinking about a lot of the things that kind of come up in the performance and recognized a lot of people in it um, that I, I highly recommend. It's called In and of Itself and it's on Hulu. It's very good. Have you seen it, Jillian, or heard of it? I haven't. I have. I've heard of it and I've heard that you should just watch it and not look anything up. Well, as always, even though this episode was an odd one, we had a great conversation. We took it there. We took it where <laughs> it needed sure to go. We took it where it needed to go. Thank you for joining us, Jillian. <laughs> I end this episode. I end these episodes so weird. I don't know why I'm doing this. Thanks, Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll talk to Bye. you next week. Subscribe to What's the Story with Jillian and Shauna wherever you listen to podcasts. Every episode of Wishbone is on YouTube, and we've linked them for you at wishbonepodcast.com. Hope you'll join in.